And welcome back to Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking. You were listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is DJ Pamela Louie, and I am thrilled to have my guest, Sophia Andari, who is an incredibly accomplished person. I have, I've been looking at her bio, and uh, I'm just going to read off some of the things here before we get into it. Sophia Andari is a first-generation Lebanese-American commissioner, activist, organizer, and analyst. Her experience living through the civil war in Lebanon during early childhood shaped her worldview and passion for bridging the divide among diverse perspectives. Sophia is a co-founder of the Women's March San Francisco and was unanimously voted to chair the organization following its inaugural launch in, 20, in January 2017. I remain co-chair until January 2022 and has stayed on as an advisor. In 2019, Sophia was appointed by Mayor London Breed to the Commission on the Status of Women of the City and County of San Francisco. She is also currently serving on the board of directors of Alliance for Girl, board of advisors of Gen Up, and board member of Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club and the SF Swana Democratic Club. She has received an achievement award from the San Francisco Women's Political Committee, certificate of honor from the Board of Supervisors of San Francisco, the Community Public Service Award from Alice B. Toko's LGBT Democratic Club, and a certificate of honor from Mayor London Breed in recognition of her and the Women's March San Francisco efforts to register women to vote and make San Francisco a more equitable place. And that's just half of it. It is such an honor to have you here, Sophia. I'm not sure if you're muted. I think you might I, be muted. I, yeah, I had muted. it on you. Uh, I'm sorry you had to let's read see. all of that. Can you hear oh, me? Wait, hold on a second. Okay, let's try it again. Hold on, Hi. hold on, hold on. Okay. Are you with me? Hi, Pamela. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Great. Hi. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, I, I muted it. I'm sorry you had to read all of that. That was quite a No, funny. are you kidding? I'm I'm reading it in awe. I, it's just <laughs> you're you're so such an uh, accomplished person and it is it really is such a pleasure to have you uh, on the show. So thank you so much for being here. The pleasure uh, is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be on the show. Well, there's so much that I want to ask you, and I. Yeah. And so, but before we get into, let's say, what's happening today, I, I want to talk a little bit about your childhood. So, did you grow, you grew up in Lebanon? So I was actually born in Michigan, and uh, while the Civil War was happening in Lebanon, my parents really, really were missing home. So when I was three, the Civil War ended in Lebanon. So they decided they wanted to move back to Lebanon. They were, you know, most of their families over there, they were really missing it. And my mom hated the the cold, even though it snows in Lebanon where we live. But, you know, uh, I guess it was easier for her in Lebanon. Um, we got back to Lebanon and two months later, the civil war restarted. So I lived um, from the age three until I was eight in Lebanon. And that was like the last five years of the civil war. You know, and it's by that time, it's really interesting how societies kind of get used to war, right? By that time, they had already had 10 years of war. So they were just going by their daily daily routines. But, you know, we had some great times and we had some bad times where we would have to go to the bomb shelter that was underneath our house, right? And uh, our families that were nearby would come because there was like one kind of main shelter in each area. And... um it got really difficult when we weren't able to go to school. So at that point, me and my sister, you know, by the time we were like five, six, 
my parents were like, okay, school was on and off. And that was a, that was a big kind of, you know, education's important, right? And my parents understood that. And I'm very privileged because I was born in the U.S. that we were able to come back, right? Unfortunately, a lot of folks weren't able to leave um, the war. So, but for us, we had that privilege where we were able to come back to the U.S. and uh, we moved to L.A. because the weather's better. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, why, why else would anyone move to LA? But that's just, that's just my San Francisco that's bias. That's my opinion too. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, it's what you were saying before about how people who live in war do get used to it. And I've been thinking about this a little bit because with, you know, now being it's the six month anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And I know some women who are either like left Ukraine or, or still in Kiev who work in the wine industry. Yeah. And, you know, I checked in with them recently just kind of see what was going on, but like, I know that at least in Kiev, and I think in part because Kiev is not really being targeted right now, uh, there are, is not maybe not business as usual, it's a war, but things, you know, shops are open, there are things that are, are going on. Um, so, you know, I what you're saying is, I guess, in a sense, the idea of it being normalized, but for you as a kid, having lived through that, what was your experience? It was it was really up and down because there was some days it, it's funny because I had more freedoms in Lebanon than I did growing up in the U.S. with a strict father. And the reason being is, you know, surrounded by cousins. And if you go out in the neighborhood, you know, you go up to that. We lived in the mountain region. So uh, thankfully, the war wasn't as bad there. It didn't hit us as <clears throat> as much as it did the south and Beirut. But we loved going on adventures, right? So I loved that with like all my cousins, with my sister. We would go up and like go up on, uh, you know, go hiking, all of that when we were little kids, right? And maybe the oldest kid with us would be like 10 years old. And there was no fear by my parents that somebody was going to kidnap us or do anything bad to us, right? But at the same time, there's a war. So it's like, it's it's very interesting to grow up with like, kind of having that freedom of like being able to just be a kid but then at the same time you know like a month it's good the next month it's up and down their schools would close um and for kids we would be fine with it because it's school right it's not like we were crying over not going to school but I you know as as we got older the importance of it is is a lot more you know that's how you get out of sometimes like it's poverty or, or whatever you educate yourself um you're able to provide more opportunities for yourself and for your family um but outside of that i mean i remember going to weddings i remember i, I remember so much good stuff but i also do remember some bad stuff which kind of created ptsd um, my sister has the much better memory my sister had to tell me a lot of these stories because i would have flashbacks and I would talk to her about it. And she's like, well, no, this this is kind of what happened. And for me, it was just like a visual because I was much younger. Um, you know, I, once we were playing cards, it was me, my sister and my cousin. We were on a bed. Um, this was underground um, in the bomb shelter. And the door, I guess a bomb hit us close enough where the door burst open and a shard came in and came right in between us and hit the wall. Wow. Right. So it didn't happen, thankfully, that often. But that was like a memory that I had. I also remember seeing bodies. Right. Um, 
But again, I mean, I was very fortunate because it wasn't as bad as it was in the South and very fortunate that it was only five years that I had to live through it uh, and we were able to come to the States. But there was a lot of good memories. It's, it's, it's very weird to explain, but I did have a good childhood with the exception of the bad times of the war. So it was like on and off, right? But it was more good than bad. Uh, it's very, very weird to try to explain it to somebody unless they're in that situation. But, um, you know, but the, like people just went on with their lives, right? And they had to, at that point, it was already 10 years. Right By the time I left, it was 15 years. The, the Civil War in total was like 15 to 16 years, I think. Um, but it was kind of nice being around family. Um, you know, we had four seasons in Lebanon. So it was kind of nice having snow um, in the winter as a kid, not as an adult. Um, but the school was kind of the issue that was like the on and off, right? A lot of us, uh, it's interesting because a lot of people are, a lot of kids, a lot of parents sent their kids to if if they're able to, if they have the financial means, they send them to most schools you have to pay in Lebanon. They send them to Catholic schools. I'm not Catholic, but we were sent to a nun school, a Catholic school, because that was the school to be at because they were like the strictest and you learn the most in those classes. Um, so it was very interesting because you had a mix of like all religions in these Catholic schools together. And um, while a war was happening, that people want to make it about religion, but it comes down to, unfortunately, about power and just men wanting to control. And unfortunately, they used religion to control. And you had different sects of religion, which is in Lebanon, in a country, one of the smallest countries in the world, there's 18 different religions. In a country that has six, it has six million people, one 1 million, 1.5 of which are refugees. So it has the most refugees per capita in the world. And it has 15 million outside of the country. So there's more Lebanese outside of the country than there is in the actual country. But for such a small country, there's so many different political divides. And, you know, and growing up around that as well also kind of gave me an understanding of just didn't give me the best perception of religion, I'm going to be honest, right? I think I had to unlearn a lot of kind of, I guess, animosity that I had towards religion when I was younger. I had to unlearn a lot of that and understand that, okay, you can't kind of just put it all into one into one cup. But um, yeah, I'm still not a religious person, but I do respect everybody's religion. And I understand that, you know, war is not it is it, not what is it's not what is usually seen. It's it's just about power and control at the end of the day. That's all it ever will be about. Well, you're not going to get an argument from me there. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you say that your uh, your experience, your childhood in Lebanon and what you witnessed there and how that shaped your perspective? How did you bring that and how do you continue to bring that to the work you've done as an adult? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Remember, I, I remember, again, it was just snapshots, right? Because I was very young. But I remember once <clears throat> there was fighting and we were near it. And I remember kind of soldiers shooting at each other that looked identical to me. Um, and my first thought was, why are they fighting each other? They look the same. 
right? And uh, and I remember kind of asking my dad that and him just kind of like looking at me like, yeah, that's kind of true, but it's hard to explain it to a six, seven-year-old, you know, uh, what's going on. But a lot of those memories and just a lot of growing up in Los Angeles, growing up with such diversity, I, that's one thing I do love about LA. I, I, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of LA either, but there's definitely a lot of diversity. So I was able to meet people from all over the world and really get an understanding of we're all the same. There are cultural differences, but those differences are beautiful, right? Like you kind of, like I learned so much from my Hispanic friends, you know, versus from black friends versus from Persian friends, right? I mean, this is LA. So we had a, a lot of mixture of everything and my Asian friends, um, but one of the things that I always found is there's I'm not somebody that easily compromises. Let's put it this way. I'm very honest. I'm not going to compromise with like a conservative Republican word. I'm not going to meet them halfway. Like there's no halfway uh, with the things that they want to do. But um, but there is a lot. I, I felt like with a lot of people that I meet, you know, sometimes it's it might be lack of education or they're just. They haven't met somebody from the Middle East, so they might say something ignorant. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, did you ride a camel? I'm like, my mom and dad had a my mom had a Mercedes. My dad had a BMW. So, no, I didn't ride a camel. Right. Uh, but I used to get so many ignorant statements and I was picked on a lot when I was younger. Um, but I feel like all of that really kind of solidified that. Um you can always find an in with somebody. You just have to figure out how to talk to them. And and and, and I think I had that personality young on where I can just, from the time I was young, where I can just make friends easily. So that kind of helped me a little bit. Um, I got involved in school and different, like, um, you know, we went planting trees, like at different clubs and schools. And that kind of helped me get out of my shell as well. Um, and I really feel it's because I was motivated to educate myself as much as I can and and put myself in situations where I am meeting people from all over so that I'm not just like narrow, narrow minded. Right. Or I'm not just like filtered in what I see because I saw too much of that, not, not just in Lebanon, in the U.S. I saw more of that um, and I didn't necessarily want to be that. So. A lot of where my politics comes from or um, my beliefs comes from is really just rooted in like uplifting people that believe they don't have a voice and really helping marginalized people because I never thought I could be able to like do anything, do, do the stuff that I've done because I was always pushed down and it could have, it was by teachers, it was by society. Um, and a lot of it was by systems created in the U.S. that made me not see myself, right? Queer Middle Eastern woman, where did I see myself in leadership anywhere in the U.S. when I was growing up? I'm 40 years old now, right? So we're talking about when I was in junior high and high school, never saw any of that. So I didn't think I could accomplish all the things that I wanted to. But when I realized that, you know what, I just need to remove all that stuff from my head um and just <clears throat> go by my experiences and, and treat people with respect but at the same time demand 
um, the same from from people, right? Goes both ways. Yes. So we need to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute with Sophia and Dari here on KXSF LP San Francisco. So yeah, I promise it would be a quick break. It was. Uh, okay, was like, I'm so glad to be doing this. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. This is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. I am DJ Pamela Louie, and my guest is Sophia Andari, who is, amongst other things, the co-founder of the uh, Women's March San Francisco. So let's talk about the march. Yeah. And I think that Many of us remember that time very well, where there was the 2016 election, right. and we, you know, up until about a week before, I think most of us thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, and yep. then even after, you know, the FBI said it was starting opening up the investigation again into her emails. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's those just it's emails. crazy. I mean, those emails, as opposed to like stealing classified documents. Okay. <laughs> But, but I digress. Uh, okay, yeah. so, so uh, yeah, but the, there was the 2016 election and there was ma great disappointment throughout the country. Uh, yes, obviously there are people who voted for Trump who were quite pleased, but there was, I think, a lot of people, including people who don't identify as Democrats, uh, but were just really offended by the sexism that was coming out of the, the Trump camp. So there was the women's marches all over the country. How, how, how did you get involved? How did you start the women's march San Francisco? And how was, I guess that's one question I have. And then also how, how was it connected to the larger uh, women's march movement that was happening throughout the country? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just sexism. Let's be real. It was homophobia. It was racism. It was xenophobia. It was, Islamophobia, right? There was everything. <laughs> it was, it was too, too, too many, too many to name is the sad thing. Um, so right right when the election happened, um, I'm going to be honest, I, I was extremely angry, but I wasn't surprised. I think uh, what's been happening is we put our guard down a little too much. And I'm, I, I'm not a pessimist, but I'm not an optimist either. I'm a, I'm a realist and I'm an analyst by trade. So I kind of go with, you know, uh, the data that's out there and just knowing that this country has a lot of work to do and has had a lot of work to do um, around racism um, and sexism, uh, clearly, right? Uh, sexism is, 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 and sadly will probably always be an issue, but, but a lot of it was more geared around, I think, racism. Um, so when he got elected, <clears throat> I remember for me personally, we saw uh, me and a friend. Um, uh, she's she's also queer identified um, Indian um, Indian woman. Uh, Priya Priya Sen is a good friend of mine. She uh, so we were chatting and we're like we got to do something. And then we saw the first posting. Um, it was called something else first. They switched it, thankfully. But there was a posting. I think it was a couple of days, maybe three days after the election that was on Facebook that said a woman's march on DC, right? And it was like an open invite Facebook. 
So all these people were RSVPing. And then um, I noticed that some other ones started to pop uh, in different cities as well and states. And I also noticed some countries. And that was just during the first week, right? So I contacted the organizer. <clears throat> I, I was able to get a hold of somebody for the Washington, D.C. one. And I said, hey, would love to support. How can I help? Then when I was doing my research, I realized it's going to cost way too much money to go to D.C. Uh, and to help there that I was like, why, why am I going to go there when I can do something here? Right. They connected me with Oakland. They said, oh, we got contacted by Oakland. If you want to do something local, here's the contact for Oakland. I contacted the Oakland person that also did the same thing. They contacted the D.C. person. And when I talked to the Oakland person, she's like, oh, you know what? Two people talked to me from San Francisco. Here's their contact information. So then I connected with the folks in San Francisco and uh, they're like, yeah, we're getting a group together. Anybody that's basically at that point, they were filtering. Like people were just sending each other like here, contact this person, this person. It, it really was one of those like trees. I forgot what they call that. But um, uh we ended up having our first meeting on, I think it was November 9th, November 19th, right? I think it was a Saturday. We had our first meeting at one of the co-founders, uh, who's also a co-founder, her name's Kelly, um, at her home. So I walk into this room and I remember my first thought was, and I walked in with my friend Priya because she wanted to be involved as well. The reason why I wanted to be involved, I'm going to be very honest, is because I was very worried that it was going to be a mostly white women movement, right? Because that history, right? History has shown us that, right? Or at least, at least that's what history is teaching, not necessarily everything that has actually happened, right? Because we do know that there's a lot of history that's not being told. But, um, and I was worried that there would be no queer representation, trans representation, and that's very important to me. So I remember walking into this room and I did kind of notice, okay, well, there's not a lot of diversity. And I remember first thought with meeting people is they were super excited. They're like, so glad that we do have some diversity because they were wanting that. So I felt like, okay, I, I, I think these people are gonna be my people. You know, I, I think you always get like that feeling because a lot of times I can be in spaces and it can feel tokenizing and and I, I didn't want to put myself in those positions, right? Because this is all volunteer work, right? Like you don't want to, how much abuse do you want to give to yourself, right? So we just started getting to work. It was like, like people think we were handed, we weren't handed anything, absolutely nothing. There's no guidebook. There's no nothing. We were not handed money in the beginning, nothing we had to figure out what are we going to do. So we got into different committees. I was responsible for community engagement uh, and outreach. And the only reason is because in my email, when I had talked to one of the, the people that was at the meeting the, the first day was, she said, you're really good. You had bullet points and you had a graph in your, in your email. And I started laughing. I was like, yeah, I wanted to bullet point some stuff. So she's like, good, then you can do this. So I got a group of 20 volunteers and we started putting together demographics of the different 
communities, uh, nonprofit organization, community organizations in the Bay Area and, and, and more closely in San Francisco because we knew Oakland was doing something similar. Also at that point, San Jose, um, we knew San Jose popped up, Sacramento popped up, I think even um, some, some other ones nearby. But um, yeah, so I got started with the community engagement, started putting together all these, just kind of like connecting with all these organizations because we wanted to make sure that this was big and we had a big showing and we had support and we had resources. Um, and from there, we had one person who's also a co-founder, Elizabeth Lanyon. She's on the SF Pride board. She's also part of NCLR. Uh, she ran the Dyke March for, uh, she was one of the main leads for Dyke March for six years. So she was the only person in that room that had any any understanding of what it takes to do a march and a rally, because I didn't. Um, you know, and she was talking about porta potties and permits. I was like, oh, porta potties. Everybody forgets about the porta potties. You need porta potties. Yes, you and do. Like, I mean, it was like a lot of stuff that I was like, I wouldn't have even thought of any of this stuff, right? I mean, we didn't know the permitting process. We didn't know, you know, what what's First Amendment and what's not. Um, we quickly had to just figure it out and learn it. And thankfully, we did have Elizabeth that was able to kind of guide us. And she was the first co-chair. Uh, so she took she took a lot of this leadership on. Now, when it comes to, and this is where a lot of people don't understand Women's March, right? Women's March was a movement and it wasn't like DC is a national. Unfortunately, people think of it as they are the national and, and they're in charge of all these, all these other cities, um, um, city women's marches. That's actually not true. We don't get any funding. We don't get anything from them. Right. We're, we're all, we were all self-created, self-managed. We, uh, you know, we got a 501c3 so we can get in donations. Um, and I, at that year, the March cost, like, I think it was like 65,000, 70,000. We had to get a stage, a sound. Um, actually, the first year wasn't as bad because I think we got some more stuff donated. After that, it became a little more difficult. Um, but on average, now is not the case. Now it's like 20 times more. But on average, it was like about $70,000 for us to raise to be able to do stage and sound. Um, to get the permits, to get the porter potties. And the biggest thing is the insurance as well as the medical, you have to get like, there's so much that goes around organizing it and people have no idea and we had to figure it out. Like, again, nothing was handed to us. We just figured it out and we started organizing. And at that point there was so much, like so many people were, were angry and rightfully so, right? So it was, it was not a hard ask to get donations, right? Like people were throwing money at us at that point, right? Because they're like, oh my God, you guys are organizing something. Yes, let's do it, let's do it. But, um, and volunteers as well, we had, we had a lot, like we had a main committee, I think it was, was like about 15. Um, and the overall volunteers, about 60, um, which is quite a bit, right, for, for a group that's just kind of just started putting itself together. And we organized the first March was in January. We were the only one, we had to do it. Uh, I don't know if you attended the first one, but it was in the pouring rain. Uh, I remember it well. 
I was yes. there. There were several friends and one of my friend's nephews who were visiting from New Caledonia. Oh, so, nice. so here are these like two like you know, teenage boys in the pouring rain walking around with those signs. Yeah, no, it but it there was that was amazing. I know it was a pouring rain, but I don't it was think that rain. it was yeah, crazy. at the last time it rained in San Francisco. It was but, crazy. And we had we had over a hundred thousand people. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And no one yeah. no one seemed to mind the rain. No one seemed to mind the rain. We only honestly anticipated for like 20,000. And, and even there, we were like, oh, we're not going to get 20,000. We'll probably get like 10,000. But uh, we planned for 20,000. So like everything that I, I, I led the march. So everything that I planned around like safety, security and march, I went from like, you know, I, I had different different outlines, but I went from like A to like Z in like two minutes after realizing how many people we had. And it was just about making sure that people felt safe, secured, and just making sure that things moved as smoothly as possible. We got a lot better the second, third, and fourth year, um, a lot more organized because it was a lot of learning. But the first one it was a little chaotic, and I don't think any of us, the leadership, I remember because I started the march from the front. I marched all the way down. I turned around until the last marcher. Um, hit the Embarcadero and so I waited for like over 100,000 people to, to to get down to Embarcadero and we were just standing in, in the rain like me and a couple of other leads and and it nothing like we were just running on so much adrenaline we weren't feeling anything and as soon as that last marcher came and we just looked at each other we're like what just happened like we we didn't even have time to see the other marches to follow what happened in Washington, D.C. Like, we didn't understand how big it actually was. But from the from the counts that we got was, it was in, like, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cities. I, I don't know the exact count. I think it might have been, like, 600-something cities. Um, and I think the rough estimate was 6 million around the world. Um, and and I think that might have been a, like a low low number, but it was just I I feel like leadership around the country um, and the world, like people that were just like this can't be happening, felt like they needed to do something, and they just figured out how to do it. And I always say, you just get get a group of women together, and and we can organize anything, and we really can. With, the, with with like no resources, right? Like, I think that's what people forget is we really didn't have much resources. We need to take another quick break. Uh, for those of you listening, you are listening. This is my guest is Sophia Andari, who is the co-founder, one of the co-founders of the Women's March San Francisco. And we'll be back in just a few seconds. And uh, don't forget, after Off the Hook, we have Flappy's Den, Flappy being a, a distant relative of, of Off the Hook. Uh, so uh, we're back in studio here. Now that we actually left the studio, but you were listening to Fifth Wave Radio, Queerly Drinking, 
This is DJ Pamela Louie. My guest is Sophia Andari, and we were discussing the uh, Women's March San Francisco. Sophia is one of the co-founders, and we we're talking about the very first one. So I've been to every Women's March, I think, that's happened. I didn't, I don't think it happened in 2021. Or no, it didn't. The, the last one was was right before COVID. Right. Yeah. And, and since then, obviously, the world, the world has changed. Okay, yes. so we have a different president. We have Joe Biden, who is... Uh, yeah, we, Kamala Harris is our vice president. So we have a, a woman of color who is the vice president. We have many women and also women of color who are in positions of, of leadership that were not there several years ago. Right. But, but we still have uh, the, we still have massive sexism and racism and all the, the problems that we were protesting against five years ago in, in 2017 yeah. haven't gone away. No. And I, I am wondering with, you know, now I'm assuming and hoping that the March will pick up again in 2022. But how, how do you think it's going to be different this time around? That's so we've been having meetings around that. So I, I don't know about other cities, but in San Francisco alone, um, we're not going to be able to do the march because we can't get the insurance. So unless somebody wants to give us a million dollars, I don't see it happening, unfortunately. Uh, we've been, we're, we're looking into a lot of ways, different ways of doing it, but unfortunately, um, places are not willing to give us insurance. Okay, so there are marches. You need an insurance, you need insurance uh, in order to get permits, in order to do stage and sound. Uh, now you can technically do a First Amendment march, but we wouldn't be able to do it because we're a five hundred one c three. Okay, so I don't know the specifics and the reasoning behind that, but just yeah. from hearing that, I think to myself, well, there are huge marches all the time. There are huge parades, you know, that like there's yeah. the, like the, you know, the LGBTQ parade in San Francisco that has yeah. like, why why can that happen? And you but even the pride, march. but even the pride parade, I I don't know the exact amount of their, but I believe it's a quarter million. Um, mm -hmm. is is their insurance, right? But when you're doing a protest, then that that's a different category than a parade, right? Uh, and unfortunately, what we're hearing right now from brokers and just uh, brokerage companies and just nonprofits. Or fiscal sponsors of nonprofits is they're saying <clears throat> it's a mixture of COVID and it's a mixture of um, what a, what the FBI is saying that there's a lot more. Which again, I think it's been there forever, and I think just right now people are just putting a lens on it a little more. But you know, they're talking about um, uh, Nazis and, and 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 white supremacist terrorists, right? That right now every, the, just everything is heightened in that sense so a lot of companies are not willing to give the insurance unless it's an extremely high cost unless you're going to pay an extremely high cost so trust me we're, we're frustrated I, literally last night uh, late at night I, I was having a conversation with uh, the two new co-chairs um and um and uh, two advisors on this so we're very frustrated um but you know, it's but we're also looking at it as an opportunity. And and let me explain. So I love marches and rallies. Okay. I've done outside of the four for Women's March San Francisco, I have 
led a lot of marches in San Francisco in the last six years. Um, some under a different umbrella that wasn't Women's March San Francisco, but you know, it was like supported by. Um, so I absolutely think it's important to have that show of strength and unity and to empower folks by getting out on the streets, um, you know, and, 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 and kind of stating and, and reclaiming that it's our streets and, you know, and, 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 and we need to be listened to, right? And I absolutely love, love our rallies. Um, I mean, you've attended all four, so I'm, I'm sure you've seen the, the community leaders that we've had on our stage. We've always had, um, we, we've mostly uplifted um, women of color um, and marginalized women, right? And we always make sure that it's a very diverse group that's up there, but we uplifted the community leadership a lot more than we ever did with in regards to um, politicians, because at the end of the day, I didn't want to give people that already have platforms another platform. So I think it was important for our communities to hear from locals that, that are doing the work. Right? And we, we have some amazing local activists that I don't think get the recognition that they deserve. But aside from that, one of the biggest frustrations I have <laughs> And I, I manage most of social media, so I see a lot of it and I get very, very annoyed. And I think that's what changed in the last six years for me is I'm not as nice as I used to be. Um, but a lot of times we've been getting messages and it's a lot of privilege, right? Of people being like, why aren't you this? Why aren't you doing on the streets? Why aren't you this? Why aren't you this? I'm like, we are all one, we are volunteers you know, we, we we have so much going on in our lives as well outside of being volunteers, but we're also limited to what we can do. And we also would the amount of money that we need to raise take takes a lot. And right now people are so spread thin because there's so much places that they're giving money to. Like I said, the first year every we so many people were throwing money at us, right? But it got harder and harder each year. It really did. It was it was a very, very stressful thing to do the four that we did, especially the last year, that was just extremely difficult to raise $70,000, which is really sad to say in a city like San Francisco that has so many millionaires, right? And a couple of billionaires. Yeah. Um, it's very frustrating, right? But and it's very frustrating to have to deal with the insurance um, when, when we're not doing anything wrong. We've always been very safe and we've always been very respectful of just everything that we can be but we wanted to be on the streets and we wanted to be heard but one of the frustrations that I get is a lot of people are like what why aren't you doing a march why aren't you doing a rally when's the next one and my response to them is always like well what are you doing aside from that because if you are just coming to a march and you're just marching and you're taking your pictures for social media and that's it then you have missed the entire point of the movement and you're pissing me. You're, you're annoying me. I don't know if I can say that word. That, <laughs> that, that is one of the words you can That's, say. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I sent you the list of the forbidden you did five. The list. Like, I don't think that's yeah. on the list, but you're We're annoying good. me. Okay. Yeah. Let's, I'll, 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 I'll keep it. I'll keep it simple. But it's, it's more about the, just the audacity of some people. Like, it's like, I, because of this, a lot of a lot of activists, like our health, mental and physical health is not that great. 
right? And people don't think about that, right? Like, it's not like, I'm not getting paid to do any of this. I never have been, right? And I'm not saying that I want to be paid for it, but it's more about just having that understanding that you need to step up too. It shouldn't just be me that has to step up for you, right? And the people with more privilege need to step up the most. And this is where I get very angry is, you know, with there's different ways with certain privilege. You can show up by money, right? Especially if you have a lot of it, support. And you can show up by volunteering, right? And if you can't do either, it's fine, right? And 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 again, I'm talking about the privilege. I'm not talking about individuals that have five jobs that they have to work in order to make ends meet, right? I'm fighting for those individuals because I want to change the system for them not to have five jobs, for them to have one job and 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 be able to live um you know um be able to live freely and and, and not starve right and not live on the streets right so i'm talking about the privileged folks right so there's ways that you can get involved so one of the things that we have been talking about and again just bringing this up this is we just talked about it yesterday nothing is set in stone but we're thinking about doing a conference because then the we would still have to, of course, get insurance, but the insurance would be a, the liability is a lot less, especially if it's an indoor conference. So we're, we're thinking about doing a conference because I think we need folks to start getting more engaged. Right. We have done. I mean, if you go to our website, womensmarchsf.org, go to all of the events that we've done in the past and you can see a list of all the events there. Right. We've done a lot of events outside of our major marches. We've done a lot of smaller marches as well, not just the major ones. We just had one for reproductive justice not too long ago, which was co-hosted by 21 local organizations, including NARAL, um, uh, NARAL California, Pro-Choice California, Planned Parenthood. Uh, we have reproductive justice. So there's a lot of like groups that have been involved. So one of the things we even created a video with all these organizations, especially the ones around reproductive justice, right? Especially after after uh, Roe, which we knew was coming. Like we have been telling people that this is coming. They've been planning it for 50 years. They never stopped working, but we did, right? So. It's about getting involved and there's so many, and I'm not just saying with us, with Women's March San Francisco, we have a partnership list on our website. We also create, created a reproductive justice page. Uh, if you go to the website, go to um, take action. It lists out all the organizations, local ones you can get involved with if, around reproductive justice, um, places you can donate to. Um, you know, and just link out to their pages so you can see events and see how you can get involved. Because I, I'm friends with a lot of the, you know, the direct executive directors and people that work for these organizations and they need support. They need financial support more than anything, but they also need bodies. They need people showing up. They need people to come get trained on, um, whatever volunteers that they need like a lot of times it can be you know to to go out of state if you're able to go out of state right now we're going to get an influx of people coming in to get abortions right and we have to figure out ways to not just fundraise for that but get, get money for that but also there's going to be like a huge fundraise uh, uh, sorry a huge volunteer effort needed to to support these individuals that are coming here 
right? And and how that how that looks, uh, there's so many different ways that it can look, but all these organizations are starting to do that work and they need that support. So again, I am a little sad that most likely we will not be able to have a march and a rally um, in, in, um, in um, January, but at the same time, I really think that this gives us more an opportunity of trying to get you know, as many people to show up to something that gives you workshops, uh, that trains you on how to get involved, that connects you with these all, all these different organizations. We've done that on a small scale. We're kind of looking to do it at a bigger scale, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that would be amazing if you could get 100,000 people to, instead of March, to spend a few hours a month volunteering. Yeah, uh, but, now, do you, but, but do you know how that never happens? Because uh, I know I, this is KXSF is a volunteer organization. Yeah. I, I know how that works. You know how that is, right? Yeah. So it's like when we do events that are like surrounding more about like action, actionable things, we get 100 people. Yeah. Right. So that that's where my annoyance comes from. <laughs> OK, well, I'm going to give you a minute to, to calm down. Uh, not, not that you're not calm. Now that you're not caught, but uh, we do need to take it's another passion. quick break. It's passion. It is exactly, exactly. My my bad. It is is passion. Uh, but we, we do need to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a minute. All right. Well, sorry that got that got cut off. But I just to continue on. Yes, go check out Open Mind. It's in Rockridge, um, and it is a great shop if you are looking for vinyl, CDs, and a wide uh, range of music. So, uh, getting we only have gosh, just about ten minutes left. This has gone quickly, Sophia. I I, I feel like we're just starting to get into it here. Uh, so so let's just uh, segue a little bit into talking about the state of feminism today. And I know that the name of my show is it's like Fifth Wave Radio, which is like about the idea of fifth wave feminism, which is that is not just about women's rights and it's not just about the rights of white middle class women, and but it's about it's about helping all marginalized communities. Like, yeah. you know, we all, we're all in this together, lifting one another up. And it, and it seems like the, the direction that the Women's March was going in, and maybe even in San Francisco started out that way, was, had a very similar bend of this is, this is an intersectional movement. Yeah. Uh, would you say though, that feminism today, I mean, I, and I think it's hard to say there is one brand of feminism that is yeah. really overshadowing everything else. But what, what do you think about the state of feminism today? Um, and, and just like there was a time 30 years ago where feminism was kind of a bad word. Yeah. And, and now, I, now it's not, you know, at least I think in a lot of circles, yeah. it's definitely not a bad word. It's always queer, right? So, right. right. Yeah. But yeah, so, so what, what do you think about the current, let's say, feminist movement, at least feminism here in the Bay Area and where, where, it, where it's at? Yeah, no, that's that's a very good question, and that's a question that probably needs like five hours to talk about. But <laughs> in, in in the in the high level, um, yeah, there has been different waves, and and like I said from the beginning, I was very concerned that you know 
being one of the founders and, and being the primary chair for the last six years, that I wanted to make sure that people saw themselves in the group and saw themselves um, at our events, right? And I feel like feminism, <clears throat> I love that word. I think it's a good word. I'm a feminist. I'm not uh, unapologetically a feminist. I'll always be a feminist. And I think unfortunately some folks have hijacked that word or um, have tried to um, put a definition on it that's not um, that's not valid or true. Can right? you speak about can you speak about that a little bit? Like when you say like, who, who's trying to hijack it? So I feel like a lot of times, so I mean, and, and, and I, I've seen some, some women sadly, right. Where they say, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a feminist. I love men. And I'm like, what does that have to do with loving men or not loving men? Right. And, and I get very annoyed by that. And I hear that comment a lot from women versus men. Um, on, uh, you know, or feminism. And, and I think that's the biggest stereotype, right? Feminists hate men. That's not true. We just want equality, right? Um, and then a lot of times with like, oh, well, equality looks different for men and women. But at the end of the day, if I'm doing the same job, I should be getting paid the same money as a man. And if I'm doing it better, I should be getting paid more than a man <laughs> for, for that matter, right? Um, but I just feel like it's 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 been kind of given that like negative, um, and not in the Bay Area, right? In the Bay Area, you, it's if somebody's not a feminist, especially a woman, I don't think they're gonna like publicly say it, right? I think they'll get shamed very quickly. Um, and honestly, I'm not bothered by that if they do get shamed very quickly. You know, with men, I I was especially in the queer community for me personally, I work a lot with Harvey Milk Club. So I'm working a lot with gay men, right? Gay white men, uh, gay men of color. And it's very important that I see them being feminists as well, right? And because it, feminism needs to be not just women being feminists, like we need men to be feminists. We need to start teaching our, our, our young men, um, you know, young boys, that they are feminist and that it's not a bad word and that they should be proud of being a feminist. And I think that's where, what I'm loving the younger generation because you're seeing that, right? You still kind of have a lot of the old school folks or a lot of conservatives that are still like, you know, feminism is, is, is bad and, you know, uh, women are women. And then of course you have, um, you have unfortunately um, transphobia plays into that, mm -hmm. right? And that frustrates me so much because to me, you cannot be a feminist and be transphobic. But there is transphobia within like women's movements too. Yeah, Oh, oh and, no, and, and the queer community, yeah. 100%, right? But to me, you cannot claim you are a feminist. Like, you need to make up your own word at that point, because to me, feminism has to be intersectional and it has to respect the, the, just the idea, right? Like feminism, like trans women are women, right? We, we can have that argument all you want, but trans women are women. Like it's, it's not, it's not, it's a matter of fact, right? And, and it's very frustrating when we have a lot of folks that, you know, within any communities is like, oh, well, no, we, sh we, should, we should be fighting for cis women or we should be fighting for this. Well, that's what happened in a lot of those movements, 
right? The queer women were pushed to the side because they're like, hey, hey, this is more important right now. We're fighting for this. Like, let's stay on topic of this topic. Why is it, why does it always have to be that you just fight for one thing? That's the whole point is, is right now, when we talk about intersectionality and, and, and a person's intersect and, and just their, 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 their life, like what do they bring to that table, right? I'm queer, I'm Middle, I'm Middle Eastern, I'm a woman, right? And, and there, there, there's, there's so much more about me, but those are parts of me that I bring, that, that I always will bring to my, to, I'll bring to the table, right? And with feminism, if we don't start acknowledging those intersects and if we don't start acknowledging that we need to support each other, I'm not black, but I support black women, I black men too, right? And non-binary individuals, right? I'm I'm gonna support the black community. I'm gonna support, I'm gonna support the indigenous community, I'm gonna support the disabled community. Wh whatever communities are there, I'm gonna support them. And, and I'm hoping that they would support me as well. But at the end of the day, you cannot call yourself a feminist if you're not fighting for the most marginalized among us. Because if you're not helping build those people up, then you're not a feminist, you're just selfish. Well, <laughs> again, I'm not, I'm not arguing. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that today that there is, uh, and I, it's, we do have a much a bigger, like it, feminism has from where it was 50 years ago, where it's a, it's completely, the tent is much bigger too. And that is something that I think is really hard. Um, it's, it's great. And the concern that I have, and it's not a concern that I have with feminism itself, is, is that there is, we have we in the Bay Area. We have even people who are kind of conservative by our standards. Yeah, are not really com compared to the rest of the country. Oh, com completely. A and the yeah. one, and I think there are a lot of working class women. You know, you know, multiple women of color, white yeah. women, trans women, and I still am concerned that their needs as like being part of the working class. I think the one thing in this country, and I think this is where the Democrats uh, and prog and progressives too, I think, are often just don't understand the class divisions in the country. And they don't at all. Yeah. And, and I, so it would be, I personally, I'd love to see a women's movement that paid more attention to that uh, going forward. Because it seems like there's a lot of people who are part of women's movements and the people I know who, who march and it's, you know, mostly middle, like educated middle class, upper middle class, wealthy people. And oh, like w w everyone has a place, but it's just looking at those other, you know, these other issues. And, and do you see just from, we only have a couple of minutes left, yeah. but from your vantage point, do you see where their feminism and women's movements are going are starting to look more at the class issues that are involved in this too no no completely i i get exactly what you're saying i'm going to give you one very quick example so uh i think it was at the second or third i think it was at the third march okay i was behind stage before the march started i was running around like i always do doing media um, and then I was kind of like waved over by somebody and I thought there was an emergency. So I ran there. I was like, Hey, are you okay? What's going on? It's an older white woman. And 
she asked me, she's like, are, are you going to have white women on the stage? Because I haven't seen any. And I just remember, I, it took me a second and I, and I kind of was taken aback a little bit. I was like, at that point, I think we, were, we had already like four or five women. We always start with our Native American community. Um, but we had like maybe four or five women already that had gone up on the stage. And I was just, I didn't even know what to say. And thankfully my PR person was right next to me. She's like, I'll take care of this. You go away. I was like, <laughs> and she is, she is a white woman, right? Middle to upper class white woman. She's our PR person. She has her own, uh, the key PR. She has uh, Martha. She has her own PR, all women run PR firm. She's amazing. Uh, she helps kind of like really get me out of my shell as well. And I love her. Um, but I, 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 I left and I remember like just thinking about that for weeks and weeks after I was very angry and I was just like, what, what do we need to do? What more do we need to do? The biggest problem is that we need to, we need privileged women or women of the higher classes or, or women that, that, Yes, they've had it hard, right? I'm not taking away anything from anyone, but we need them to understand that they need to uplift the most marginalized and they have to find ways to help us break down these systems that keep women poor, you know, that keep Black women poor, Hispanic women, right? That keep women of color poor, that keep the most marginalized, right? That, that we need their help. But it's also about showing up in the right way, right? We have like the white savior complex, right? But it's showing up in the in the right way where you're uplifting these people and you're not basically on the microphone and they're standing behind you. That you put them in the front, you help them get into those spaces that they normally can't get into. Because at the end of the day, the people that we really, again, until we are all equal, and this goes for women, right? Like until we are we are on equal footing, you know, uh, feminism is is not going to be like truly real, right? And we're not going to have the equality that we want to have. So it's very very important that they need to understand that there's all these systems that are pushing these people down. And like I said, a lot of folks can't come to a march and a rally. They're working five jobs right? Or they have kids that, 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 you know, or they have very, very young kids, maybe they're not able to bring them. There, there, there's so many different circumstances, right? But that doesn't mean that we don't fight for them. And we don't find ways to get them involved. And we go to them and not expect them to come to us. And, and those kinds of changes need to happen. But it really comes down to with people getting out of their comfort zone, and realizing that they need to step up, but also step back. Well, that is a, I think a very powerful uh, and poignant way to conclude our conversation, which, and hopefully you and I will have a chance to continue this conversation off mic. Uh, I would love to. Yeah, well, let, let's set something up. We do need to uh, move on. Uh, for those people who are listening or at four o'clock KXSF, goes off of FM and then becomes a streaming station. So for those of you who are streaming it, you're still here, unfortunately, for those on FM. Probably can't hear this any longer. Uh, but you are listening to KXSF LP San Francisco. And uh, this is Fifth Wave Radio Queerly Drinking. Thank you so much for listening. And I will be back next week.